my vision of the future, kids don't have to come out because being any gender you want is part of what is actually happening. I live in Brooklyn. I have privilege in being a city that is more inclusive than others. But as an adult coming out as trans means that you, you took a leap of faith into jumping out of the boat and you didn't die. Are you fucking thriving? And you're free. And you discover this other way of living that is not blocked, constructed, like controlled. And the power in place, they hate that. Because you're free. You're free of thoughts. And you convince other people that they could have freedom in thoughts. And that's why there's so many control and hate and not wanting kids to have gender expansion and try to explore that because that's not what's going to make good white citizen Americans. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Works in Process, the podcast about uncovering creative methodologies from people doing inspiring work. I'm excited to announce for the next three episodes, Works in Process will be in collaboration with Tech Circus as a media partner for the What If Summit this October. What if design can change tomorrow? What if organizations put DEI first? What if you can represent the underrepresented? These are some of the themes that will be discussed at this virtual summit, which brings together DEI experts who aim to create breakthroughs and promote inclusive futures for everyone. During the lead up to the What If Summit, Works and Process will talk to summit presenters and explore the methods behind their creative decisions and ways to prioritize the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion within organizations, teams, and professional practices. I'm your host, designer and educator, George Garasecki Jr. And join me as I continue to elevate the creative process by shifting the focus to how we work over what we produce. On today's episode, I want to welcome Max Monsieur. Max, who is using they, them pronouns, exclusively works with organizations to embrace a justice-focused mission rooted in social change and anti-racism at their core. They believe in reparations and the liberation of underrepresented communities. Max hosts workshops on how to support trans and gender nonconforming folks, how to overcome imposter syndrome, and how they get started in inclusive design. Also, they're a senior inclusive UX strategist for All of Us Research Program with the National Institute of Health. In 2022, Max published a nonfiction book that shares their life as a trans person and their process of overcoming imposter syndrome. You Don't Suck, How to Overcome Imposter Syndrome, and they are currently writing their first memoir. Hey, Max. So happy Hi. to get you on the podcast. Yeah, so good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you spending your time. And I just realized, and you just let me know that you're you're local too. So, you know, maybe one time we need to just kind of like see if we can link up. That would be awesome. I always like meeting in person, right? Yeah. We so much. Exactly. Exactly. So I really want to get into your book and incorporating the DEIA into your design research. But before we do all of that, let's just do something fun and clear your mind. Yeah. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. At the beginning of every episode, I do these little icebreakers. And so it's just a series of this or that questions. Coffee or tea? Oh, tea. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. <laughs> I don't like the taste. And yeah. Toast or bagel? Toast, like I'm French, so I like <laughs> I like bagels, but toast, yeah. Graphic design or service design? Oh, I'm all about service design. I started as a graphic designer, but service design is really in my DNA, yeah. 
strategizing, or consulting? I'm in between. Like I did a lot of consulting, but now I'm really into strategy. So I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And luck or intention? Oh, intention. 100% intention. Yeah. <laughs> and now secondly, I do a quick word association, right? So the first thing you think of when you hear these words. Okay. Creativity. Respiration? Like aspiration? Aspiration? Perspiration? Perspiration? Like, like sweat? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Determination. Strength. Business. Tricky. Failure. Oh, learning. Community. Inclusion. Education. Ooh, the one I have in mind is incarceration, like the opposite. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I get that. I get that. Mistakes. Growth. Skills. I can think of a ladder. Like, yeah. okay. History. I want to say fake. Like, how we don't know. Like, we've been taught the wrong history. Like, it's been whitewashed, white supremacy. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Opportunity. I didn't think of jumping. Jumping into an opportunity. Yeah. Nice. Accessibility. I think about that as, like, the base. Everything should be accessible first. Agreed. Future. When I think of future, I think about exciting. Like, excitement. Okay. And last but not least, process. My word is love. I love process. I love improving my process, learning about processes, but also from anything, how they make clients, you know, like processes or like how administration works, how they create these or that. So yeah, love. Yeah. The behind <laughs> the scenes is always yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. I just always like starting my episodes with this kind of fun way to fire our brains. And so now I want to give my listeners a glimpse into how you were introduced into designing creativity. And I call this section origin story. So where did you grow up and were you creative as a kid? I grew up in France, specifically in Normandy. And I was a very creative kid. I created a lot of things, crafted a lot of things all the time by myself. Like I was a very like introverted kid, always trying to build things. So the most memorable thing I built was a dollhouse, almost from scratch, building the whole walls and the wooden floor with like little pieces of wood and putting some colors on it, like really like doing all the details. I went back to that recently. I like, I did some more miniature model stuff. I'm into doing terrariums and it's really bring me back to how I felt as a kid as like a good way to bring back my imagination, creativity. Yeah, that's awesome. Who, if any, has been one of your biggest supporters in your creative career? It's a tricky question for me because I have a very difficult history in my life where I had had a mentor for many, many years who I separated ways with maybe five, six years ago, because this person I realized all the time was really controlling. So I became the person he wanted me to be and to support his work. So he really modeled me and managed me to be what he needed. 
So when I started to like grow more and like, hey, I also want to be a creative director. That was a big no. Like I was shut down. And this is where I had to get out of that and heal from that. And having a lot of imposter syndrome of like, can I be a creative director? Can I be managing more things instead of just being UX, UI designer? Because I was treated as I was not good enough to do it and not being able to grow under this mentor's like shell, like I was really put down. And that's a lot of the work I did in the past five, seven years or like growing to myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's tricky for me because I had very good support, but it was very diminishing when I started to grow too much. Yeah. Right. It almost seems like kind of that impetus moment of realizing a lot of that stuff. And, you know, sorry about having, you know, a mentor that, kind of was really self-serving and not really supportive. So what was your first creative job and how did you stumble into it? The first first one was back in 2001. There was the beginning of HTML. There was, there was full force into Flash. And I was, it was after high school and I did like a, two years into product design, like industrial design. And then mm-hmm. like one year, around more graphic design. And during that graphic design course, I was working half-time. So it was like fellowship kind of thing. And I tried to be super creative like I was, but I was working for the biggest aerospecial, like rocket ships Mm -hmm. built in France. So I was like, that was hard for me because I was like, let's do something great and innovative. And they they were very tech and engineers. And I was like, 19 like no and i very very quickly realized i would work better as a freelancer so that like maybe when i was when it was like four years later i was freelancing and i freelanced for like more than 15 years after that so after all of that when did you first consider yourself a creative you know what i think i was a creative way before that I'm very lucky that my parents supported me into going to high school for the arts there was like high school where I was spending like 20 hours a week doing art, like creating art history and really like the vibe was really already what some people might have experienced in college for our class where you just do your project and right. ask the teacher to help you. So I was already a creative when I was like 12, 13 in my mind, in my parents' minds. I have a grandfather who uh, was a painter. So I, they have a lot of, like, I took classes at the Beaux-Arts, the Beaux-Arts in France since I was nine. So it was really, like, I was a creative for almost all my life. And because I was in France, I did not have to take a loan to go to college. Mm-hmm. I did not have to pick, like, the specialty that will bring me, me back money after. So I know right. that's a privilege. And I realize how it is different from other folks I know who, like, had to go to business school and then do some art on the side. So I was a creative very early on. And my, my dad had to fight the middle school. How do you call that? The counselor? The one who was like helping you to decide where you should go for high school? Yeah, we have like a you know, counselor, right? Yeah. And my dad had to come to the school and tell that person to stop bugging me because he was like, oh, you have good potential. You should go into science. You should go into literature. Like, And my dad came like, no, you're going to let my kid do art 
Otherwise, my kid would never graduate. And I learned later is because my dad was not supported by the school at all as being more sensitive kids and mm-hmm. creative kids. And he was like, no, you're doing it. You have my full support. And I think that was a big, big piece into me going to that field and feeling very confident. Yeah. That's awesome to have that support and have, you know, a parent fight for you like that, especially noticing what kind of talent their kid may have. So amazing. Amazing. So, you know, I, I do that. Right. And I think it's a great way for us to shortly get a lot of information about who you are, where you come from, because the heart of the conversation is coming up. So we know that this is where you've been. And now we want to talk about where you're at now. So we've heard that you've been in the industry and freelancing for about over 15 years. But I noticed when looking up some of your information, right, you're doing healthcare. And when you think about design, healthcare for me is not one of the first industries you think about going into. But you focus on healthcare and organizations that are justice focused and Mm -hmm. rooted in anti-racism. Can you explain what it means for an organization to be justice focused and rooted in anti-racism? I came to that conclusion that was my purpose in life. I started to work with a lot of startups when I started freelancing. That was the beginning of the iPhone and all of that made me very excited about apps, about startups. So I worked with a lot of high tech, tech startups. Almost all of them were like owned by cis white dudes that had a lot of privilege. That was okay for me. So I was just like, oh yeah, it's exciting. Let's revamp, let's disrupt, let's this, this and that. And I got very excited about projects that were like just yeah, are we really going to do something above the world by just fixing something that nobody cares? Like, I feel like I wasted some of those energy resources for products that didn't mean anything. And so it took me a while to understand why I was feeling so off and why I was feeling I was not good enough. It took me many, many years to like accept that and realize that there's something else than the tech startups, Silicon Valley world. And it was very, very scary to get out of it because I didn't know what I would do because the money was there. Everyone was like in this big bubble. This is where the thing are. I was really feeling very proud of being working in, like I work for banks. I work for like Credit Suisse. I work for Goldman Sachs. And I was like, yeah, I reach the top of what I could do, you know, like big people are want to work with me. But then I, I was feeling off, like I was feeling dirty and feeling not really accomplished, like something was missing. And I started to look around where other people were doing. And I was really into trying to work with governments of like the one product I wanted, really wanted to do, I remember was like, what about helping people to have food stamps, benefits. Like, how can I help real people? People who are really in need of something rather than wealthy folks who just going to have another tool to invest and sell and buy millions of dollars. Like, there's something else I want to touch and I could be useful. So I joined a few networks like Design Group for Good, stuff like that. I started to like be more open, being to different communities And I realized there was a lot of other options. I look around new job listings that were not start like for like those type of startups that were like 
looking for rock stars, ninjas, and more like, how can I enter that world of being more meaningful and having more impact? Like I was working with a video game company for like 18 months, something like that. Out of Palo Alto, I was in New York working remotely and I ended up having like a big burnout. I couldn't work for three months. I had a high fever. I had to stay in the hospital for like three weeks, something like that. That's where I reset, full reset. And I, ha- I start to work again with the same company after like three weeks. I could not understand anything on the screen. Like my brain was overwhelmed just opening my laptop and looking at stuff. I, I was happy designing. Like I was building a very complex tool for telling stories through text messages. And I was, mm-hmm. and I was designing the whole interface. I was working so many hours and the CEO was slacking with me at any time of the day. And I was super proud and excited. And I had a lot of like momentum. And when I had to come back to work to that, my brain was like, no, no, you're not going to do that. So literally I, I looked at the computer screen and I couldn't understand anything of what was on the screen. And this is where I started a long journey of healing. Mm-hmm. And during that healing, I also really, really thought about, wait, what I want to do, who I want to work with, who I want, where is the impact I want to have. So I, it took me a few months to like being able to move to that field. Right. So let me ask you really quickly, right? You were having a moment where you noticed that you had to heal. And then even going to work was very anxiety driven, right? Like you literally couldn't interpret what was on the screen. When you realize that, you know, you're having this moment and your body knows that it's time to take a reset. Is that just job related? Is that life related? Or is your body telling you one thing, your mind telling you a different thing? How was that happening at the same time life is happening with you, Max? This is, yeah, I think this is the climax of why I needed to shift in a lot of ways, professionally and also my own identity. So what happened is that this specific moment when I burned out was a mix of three things. I can see like too much work, but also the wrong work. And this inside voice that was always this mentor that was really abusive and controlling, telling me that I was not good enough, that the work I was doing was not reaching the levels of working with international companies or whatever, like whatever that goal to be enough as a designer, that's unreachable. That's something I I would have never been able to reach, but I was forcing myself, always thinking what this mentor would have thought of me doing this. So I was not working with that person anymore, but his voice was still there and very present. And the third, which was also very strong, is that I started to... My body and my mind were completely disconnected because until that moment, I was a woman. I was born a girl and I was raised as a woman until I turned like around 35, 36 years old. And I was still fully in my mind a woman until that point. So those months of healing were also me being in the mess of like, I started to be attracted to a woman. I was married with a cis, uh, cis guy for many years. I had a kid with that person, a kid that I carried and gave birth to. And a lot of shifting in my identity happened that specific moment. So during 
the months of healing from the burnout, I spent a lot of time also exploring. I was really attracted to looking at what trans people lives were and like very committed to support trans people. And like, why? Like I was always like, yeah, LGBTQ folks should be accepted. And, and I was like, why do I care so much about trans lives? In that winter, I traveled to Australia to see a family member and I decided to go for haircuts. I had like a bob and I wanted something shorter. And I, all my life, I heard my mother say, my mother say, don't get it shorter because you have a very wrong face and you make, you're going to make you look ugly and fat. So I never had this. And that I was in Australia after like two months of refiguring things out in my life. And like, you know what? Maybe that's the time I, I should have a short haircut. So I asked that. And during the cutting of the, my hair, I looked into the mirror and I saw a glimpse of who I am now as Max. So I was a mother with my kid pushing the stroller in Australia and I was wearing a dress, very feminine. But in that moment, for like three full seconds, I saw me as Max and that freaked me out. And I didn't know what to do about that. So I just closed the door like, what was that? I had a very intense moment where I couldn't take it anymore and I needed to see a therapist that I found. And the night before I was going to see that therapist, this therapist, I thought, oh, this, this therapist is trans. That's interesting. Why would I pick a trans therapist? And that was it. In my bed the night before the appointment, I was like, oh, fuck, I am trans. Oh, wow. And that really like started a whole different life, a whole different way of saying a lot of things. And that's where I changed also my work. This is like, oh, that's my calling. This is it. This is inclusion, trans inclusion. I started making different projects and I I ran a trans inclusion company for like two, three years called Argo Collective that I co-founded with someone else. And I stopped doing UX UI design for just plain mainstream. I started to like read about how can we make better experiences for trans folks? And I expanded that to all underrepresented communities. And I feel so much happier just Mm -hmm. being myself. Finally, I found myself. It makes so much sense for all the years I spent as a kid, as a young adult, as like an adult and for the work. It's like everything is aligned. I know Mm -hmm. why I'm here. I know what I'm doing that work. And I, I know I have the impact I was looking for ever. Yeah, the burnout was the beginning of something very important. One, thank you for sharing. I, I really appreciate you being that vulnerable during this conversation. But two, I think it was really impactful to hear how you were able to notice those moments and really kind of start to consider little things like the haircut or who you chose to be your therapist, right? Like these things are happening without you planning them and then they're helping you reveal and feel more comfortable in knowing what you should be doing next. Yeah. That's amazing because I don't think a lot of us tend to look at those moments. We may kind of consider that as a, oh, it, it's just an idea or this or it's not a big deal, right? And and sometimes we we dismiss those opportunities in the things that we do because it's not the way we're used to thinking, not the opportunity that we heard 
you hear somebody else's voice in your head telling you X, Y, Z, right? And it takes a, a big person to be able to kind of look at all those things and see how something needs to shift, right? And it almost seems like the burnout was necessary to allow you to start to uncover a lot of this stuff, right? And you mentioned Argo, this consultancy firm. Who are your biggest type of clients and how do you get them to really embrace diversity, equity, inclusion, and of course, accessibility into their practices? Like what are the first steps? Like, how do we do that? That's what I wanted to figure it out. I was like doing hosting workshops and that's really also like something I really thrive in. Helping people use their own creativity and as a collaborative group, figuring out solutions we would have not found by ourselves. So my take on it was like, this won't be trainings. This won't be like learning trainings. It's going to be workshops. So I use all my service design workshop skills into inclusion. And the most interesting was like, the one I already do at first is the pronouns. It's like, I have activities on how to make people who are cisgender, who are not trans, realize the importance of respecting pronouns. So I built a framework with that, with a scenario and questions and groups and sticky notes and how to find solutions around trans inclusion in their own team or company. And I have another one when I uh, it was super exciting to do with agencies where I had them map out a user journey of someone going through the main product that they have and pinpoint where there is uh, exclusive, not so non-inclusive moments. And then what can we do about it? And every group, like if it's a big team, I put them into small groups or breakout room if it's online and they work into solutioning. What could be done at this point? What could be done at that? And the bigger one is when I do that is also part of like building a diversity, inclusion, equity, accessibility, like framework strategy for the whole company. And all of that is pure service design workshops. It just instead mm-hmm. of like building a new tech app, you're building inclusion design frameworks, strategy for your company. And that's how that was so exciting for me is that that was mixing both of my my purpose in life. Yeah. So is it more internally driven or front facing? Or is it hiring practices and who you hire when you're working with companies? What are they most interested in? It's both, honestly. I even work with a company, Hornet, it's an agency, and we did both. Like we split the teams into who were the product designers who were the people more internally. And then I had two workshops on different days. And then we had a collaborative all together about how do we do that together as a company. And I enjoy both of those. And because you cannot just work on one and not the other at all. It has to be like level up. You need more trans people, queer people. You need more uh, black folks, people of color, people with disabilities in the teams. Like the company has to be more inclusive and more diverse in who are in the, the company to do better products who are inclusive. Like it's not just like 
a quick one-on-one class around how to add pronouns to your forms, that can work for like a fix at the beginning, you know? But then, no, you need to have engineers that are actually not just cis, white, straight dudes to have better perspective and grow through like more community-centered design, thinking of other people who are not included in their product yet, thinking about how people are treated in the company, like in very in tech companies that don't pay attention to that. There's like very little women in engineer and development because they stay one year and then they like just leave. They can't take it more from the toxic masculinity in the teams. So there's like, both are like very important. So you, my goal is like always trying, which, which point of entry should we go with? And I challenge the leadership people also like, mm-hmm. well, if it's only cis white dude in the leadership, how can you imagine women, people of color, people with disability, queer or trans people, imagining them themselves, like become right. leaders, managers. Yeah. Right. Right. Playing those roles is, is something that needs to be really embedded in those cultures in businesses Obviously, they're hiring you to do these workshops. So what is the reception to that? How has that been? Yeah, so it took a while for us to like get more clients because we were both very excited about training people, having those workshops. That was tough. Like my regret is like we spent too much time into trying to convince people who are like so far in the exclusion way of being. Mm-hmm. And after a while, a long while, we discovered, okay, what if we just go to companies who already have some type of inclusion in central ways, like people who already have employee resource groups for queer people or for black people, like what if we do like, like aim for like the less difficult entry points and we had the best scenarios where when we had someone who is an employee wanting that service but also had the support from someone who is handling the money, like someone who actually can say yes on auto training. So that's narrowing down a bit of like, who can we get a contract with? Life is tough. I was so committed to it that I already, I stopped taking clients on the side. I was like, I have a bit of money on the side. I'm going to do it. I committed 100% to it. And after two, three years, we had success, but, we had we covered all our expenses, like we managed to pay ourselves quite a while, little and there and there. That was not sustainable. Like we are not like we are not a big company. We don't have a lot of resources. We're not wealthy, so we are just doing that with our own savings. We decided to stop trying to get this company up and continuing. So I still do some of those workshops on my own. The specific workshops we like decided. Okay, we need full time jobs. <laughs> we need. <laughs> <laughs> when it's like pay the rent and it's tough. That's how the thing is, right? Is like you need to be so wealthy or have access to money to be able to stay afloat when you're like trying to build something that is not an easy. You get pushed back and you have to like you need a lot of treasury to act and get build up on that. We work with schools, like with New York New York school school. I think if we had more money, we could have like make it last but it mm-hmm. needs much time for like contacting someone and by the time we say hey yeah we should do the training and by the time they come with their manager their manager and then the company and the budget 
we had people contacting us. Oh yeah, we talked to, to you 10 months ago or a year ago. Can we do the, the workshop now? Yeah, sure. But it's like, so yeah, the first two, three years were like, we did our best and we couldn't survive. Like we don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it really tough when the passion that you have for some of these things are need to be rooted in making sure the business survives, right? That's a very challenging thing. And I'm glad to hear that obviously you'll still do workshops, but unfortunately the company and the and the big drive is a little bit different. The motivations are different just because the economics need to be there. So that seems to be why you start to focus on all these other service design industries. And and like we mentioned, I think it was all of us, right? For, yeah. for us. So what happened after that is like, I don't have any regrets really because, you know, I came out as trans and maybe I think it was like two months after I came out, three months after I came out, I had this light bulb like, oh, I should mix server design and inclusion. And by four months later, I was doing my first workshop and I was still learning what queer means, what being part of a queer community means, what my identity as trans doesn't have to be the same as anyone else. Like I didn't know I was like a baby queer, baby trans. So I also challenged my own white privilege. I also like, I had to like, I had to learn so much and more about underrepresented communities and how to like care for people who are not, don't have any enough privilege. So I learned through that as on my personal life while I was doing Argo Collective. So when we decided like we couldn't continue to do it, my man was very different from when I started it. And this is where I joined. The time was so good because I was right at the time when I was able to join the fellowship at the Blue Ridge Labs from Robin Hood. And I spent like six months with them working 40, 50 hours a week on building communities and learning more about community-centered design and really doing that every day and building my own knowledge and skills and network of people. And that really was a haha moment too of like, oh, I needed to know a lot more about Black lives. I needed to learn more about people with disabilities and people of color. Like I was looking at everything as, as a trans, queer, white person when I was doing Argo. I started to shift while doing it. But my anti-racism started at the end of that. I'm like, okay, well, I might not be the right person to do Argo Collective because there's also uh, racism and it's very like intersectional. I grew from that. And then when I started to do more community-centered design, I really wanted to do healthcare. And this is where you asked earlier, right? Is that for me, healthcare is more like access to healthcare and how different communities are not treated the same way. And there's more death rates for Black folks, Black person giving birth are like so highly different from white folks giving birth, stuff like that. So I was like, I got into a little different project that were around healthcare and I, I made my way into, in this job I do now, I do it for a year now. And I, so I work for the National Institute of Health and I work for the specific program, research program, all of us. And that has been so rewarding because the core of all of us research program, right, is to enroll people living in the U.S. who are from underrepresented communities so we can gather their health data 
and researchers can make discoveries using data that are not just from white, cis, straight people, which has been all the time since now. Mm-hmm. There's medication, there's like a lot of things that are only have been created for white people and able able white people. So there's a lot of things that we take into like into um of course we take that pill with that specific dosage. But if you're like more heavy, if you have black ancestry, those that they don't work the same way. And you might need something very different. So the research program is all about that. And it started five years ago and I'm very honored and proud that I joined this program. And I, I work with an amazing team of folks. My goal is, and my role is about onboarding. It's like, how do you contact? How do you enroll people who are just curious about it? How do you manage the Black community being very scared of government and research from all the trauma in the past? That's fascinating. And I work with all the divisions over there, the comms, the engagement division, all the, my work is a lot of workshops. It's a lot of like getting those siloed divisions to work together. And one of the main projects I did since I joined was redesigning the homepage of the website. So it's joinallovers.org. And I work with like many divisions and I pushed really hard into having copy that is really inclusive, that really like, how can we care for people who are not, like can't read easily, don't have all the knowledge, that people are afraid of what that means. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of politics. It's a lot of like managing people's expectation, ego, and fear, fear of like not doing right. Right. And it's an absolutely amazing journey. I plan to to work for that as long as they want me. No, it's it's so interesting because um, one of our last guests, um, Jessica Odie, she's a uh, disabled graphic designer from Canada, and she did an illustration for I think it was National Disability Day for Yahoo, and just talking about her process of making sure she includes disabled people, non able bodies, different skin tones, different cultures ways to understand that it may be trans representation, wheelchair representation, ableism, right? And I think part of that, when you're looking at the homepage of the All of Us website, is to make sure that you're including people, right? So that if you're going to be taking research from the Black community, there should be Black people on the home, like there should be disabled people on the homepage. There should be not only cisgendered people on the homepage, right? So that it feels inclusive. It is talking about equity and things like that. And I think a lot of that is just to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. When you feel seen, it feels a little bit more comforting to be part of some of these data sets where, you know, we do need to have more information because like you said, the body does not go through things the same way, culturally, emotionally, all of those things. And I think we always look at through one lens. I think that's one of the major problems we tend to have is it's a very binary lens. It's either this or that, male, female. You know, it doesn't take into consideration so many other nuances that go into it. And like you said, the mortality rate of Black women is so much higher than that of white women. And very rarely is it ever discussed. So I really just, you know, thank you for being part of that and helping, you know, to continue to push 
the representation and inclusivity of other non-cis white male <laughs> forms in design because I think it's such an important thing. And I'm I'm looking at my notes and I, I heard something which it really struck me, right? Which when you were thinking about Argo and you were like, I may not be the right person to do this, right? And you're an author of a book that's mm-hmm. called You Don't Suck, which talks about <laughs> imposter syndrome, which is basically that quote in a nutshell, right? <laughs> I may not be the right person for dot, dot, dot. We heard a little bit of your challenge and the shift and, and the way you changed thinking, which I think is is amazing, right? But how did you start to connect the dots that that was like being an imposter creatively? And what is the process of starting to overcome that? Yeah, I want to go back to like, I might not be the right person to do workshop around inclusion. It's also because I'm not Black, because I'm not part of people of color communities, I'm mostly able, I like to say, because I have some health issues. But one of the 10 principles of the Design Justice Network that I'm part of is do not create something that's already been created by communities. And my mistake with Argo was, I know it all. I'll do it so good that I didn't take the time to like, hey, is there anyone else doing that work that are already like, well, doing it? part of different communities. So that's why when I say I might not have been the right person to do that, it's more about being humble. Yeah, being humble and let other people do the work if they're already doing and supporting them. I could have been like a good supporter of that. But for the imposter syndrome, the thing that happened for me, the really hard moment that started to think about imposter syndrome was I was struggling with imposter syndrome my whole life. And one day I was like, like I was depressed and I've been diagnosed bipolar since then. That's part of the discoveries I had in the past seven years, right? But I had very deep depressive episodes, very high manic moments. And on those very depressive, that moment that could last weeks, it was hard for me to really enjoy life and appreciate the hard work I, I did and the good stuff I've did in the past. So in a very clear moment of my mind. I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Every time something good happens, something I'm proud of, something that I did, I'm going to write a sticky note and put it on the wall. And so I did that for like a week or a month. I forgot. And the next time I was very depressed and couldn't do anything and felt like I was a failure, I just looked up on the wall and I saw all those blue sticky notes everywhere on like all the stuff I accomplished. And I, it really like was like a big moment for me, like, oh, wait a second, I'm actually doing good stuff. And it really helped me not to go too deep on that depressive moment. And I started to like think about, oh, that's great. And how it helped me. And I also thought about how in work, how my values could be, I could listen more to my values when I look for a client and like someone who is overtly racist, someone who doesn't care about communities, I should not work with that person. So I started to have like a, a framework that I got inspired by George Aye from Chicago. I forgot the name of his company, but Good Studios, right? Good yeah. Design Studio. Yeah. He has also had this framework of like, I call it the vetting grade, like having like, what are your values with this client or job? And so which this value or not? Yes, no, yeah, no. And the end, you look and the one with more check marks, that's where you should 
spend time and, and resources on. So I had those two things in my mind and a friend was struggling not the same, feeling like they were not doing enough. And I said, you know what? Let's hang out and I'll bring some sticky notes. And so we hung out. I had them do the exercise of the vetting grade and I told them to do every day writing what was good and put it on their wall. And they were like completely changed. Like I literally had dinner with them yesterday and that was five years ago and the way they thrive and as an author and everything and playwriter now, it's just like amazing to see. So I started to like do workshops doing that for more people. I'm like, oh, if that helped one friend, what if it's going to help other friends? So I did that for like six months. And this is where I'm like, you know what? Maybe if it's a book, maybe I put those exercises in a book so more people can access that. That would be cool. And I didn't realize how hard it is to write a book, but I was like, yeah, let's do it. So my living room was covered in sticky notes everywhere with all the stuff I wanted to put in that book. I created more activities and I started to write my life, right? To explain all of that we talked today. Like how I reached that moment of like, oh, imposter syndrome, I should manage to shut it down. How can you be friend with your imposter syndrome and like, okay, I hear you, but you know what? I also did these 10 amazing things today. So shut up. I wrote this book pretty quickly, according to other writers, authors. Like I started during 2020. I had a lot of time on my hands and a lot of anger from the world, from the murder of George Floyd. Like I was like really like burning all that anger, fire. So I just spent all my time doing that. I had some, I worked with a client, but I was doing that a lot. Like um, I was very focused. And again, I was not diagnosed as bipolar yet. So I had like four months of high manic excitement. And then I was very depressed for three months. That was my creative moment of like, so yeah. So in that very high moments, I covered my sticky notes. I had an air table with everything I wanted to say, very well organized. And then I started to write and I didn't stop. So I share my life. I share those exercises. And then I I got an editor. I'm self-published with a publisher that helps people who write their first book. And yeah, so like I started, I think, like maybe June or July 2020. And I released it last year, like March 2022. So like two years. And it's not bad. It's not bad. I wanted to release it way shorter. And then my publisher quote was like, hold on. There's so many things you need to know and to do. So that's not going to happen this year, but next year, yes. So yeah, that was like a big, big moment. And like, also like, I wrote a book. Right. Talk about crushing your imposter syndrome. Like Exactly. I did that. It's here. That's a big post-it note. Yeah. And it's like, it exists. Like it's a real thing, right? It's like, I can't avoid that. I did that. Mm-hmm. So that was like a big, yeah, I'm still struggling with imposter syndrome, you know, time to time we do all, but I have techniques, I have ways to like accept and move on. I mean, one, chronicling all of that, using sticky notes, also understanding the highs and lows of bipolar and when to be more productive and when to know that your your body is not going to be productive. That's literally the low of bipolar but working into that, right? Like using the manic stages to get everything out. But then hopefully, you know, at some point looking at all the post-its when you're in your low stage and kind of at least having some like, 
oh, this is what I'm doing, right? But why as creatives, are we so scared of being imposters of something? And who puts that in our heads? I talk about it in the book, not enough. That's one of my regrets. It is society, white supremacy, capitalism. And I think because of the pandemic and people had more time in their home, the lucky ones, the people who didn't have to be saving people's lives, literally, but people like who were working in companies and maybe not like corporate companies, tech startups, started to feel like, you know what? What if I just take it slow? What if I actually think a bit harder when another black guy get killed by the cops? Like people started to think more and having more like time to think. And this is exactly why capitalism and white supremacy want us to stop, not work nonstop. Always have something to do. Always have a mortgage to pay. Always like be focused on like, you have to do more, 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 more. Because if you stop and you think, it's a bit the matrix, right? You're like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. This is wild. Why would I do that? And I think we're still on that. 2023, there's still like a less enthusiasm of like having a job. Like what having a job means? Like, I'm not going to work after hours. There's more thoughts around why uh, my body is used to make wealthy people richer. And I think that's part of also why I also use that time for using all my thoughts about life and, and I had more confidence doing that. But yeah, white supremacy and capitalism are the reason why we have imposter syndrome. Not because we didn't do enough, not because we are we didn't go to the specific college like we all are creatives. We all have potential to change other people's lives, which is, I think it's, it's a goal. Like that's my goal in life is like awakening people and having them pursue their own destiny, like not working nine to five. This is not anyone's destiny. Like nobody's supposed to work nine to five until they're like 60 or 70. So I am. I feel I didn't talk enough in that book because I realized a lot of that while writing the book and publishing. But I, I talk about it now. And my friend Sarah told me like, oh, you talk about it in the book. So I guess I do, but I, I keep, that's the thing with the book is like, ah, that's one book, but I wish I had put more stuff in it. And then, no, that, so that's a second book. You still don't ah, suck. You, you yeah. Know, like, <laughs> <laughs> they suck. That's the second book. They right. Suck. They suck. You don't suck. They suck. That's great. <laughs> so who do you think should read and, and do the activities in this book? And what is it trying to help them with? So I definitely thought about that a lot. It is a perfect book for someone who was like me, right? Someone who was like, I work for hours for this job, but I don't feel fulfilled. I don't know what to do next. I feel burned out. Something is wrong with me. And I want to help those people realize that nothing is wrong with them and they can build a, that confidence in themselves through the activities and find their purpose, right? It's like you actually have a purpose that is more than getting your, your salary and pay your mortgage. I tried a lot of things in my life and I love trying things and I'm not scared of change. But some people are. And I want this book to be 
someone like holding someone's hand or like going through that journey of like, I'm scared because what I'm doing now is making me feel awful. It makes me feel like depressed. It makes me feel burned out, but I don't know what to do. So I'm going to stay there because doing something is so too scary. Mm-hmm. So this book is for that. It's like change lives. My friend Rowan, who is, I named them as the book doula in my book because they helped me like get the dirty things that I had to get out and like overcome my own trauma to be able to make that book. So they told me like two days ago that they gifted their own copy of the book to a friend because that friend was like struggling into finding purpose in life. And this friend was sending, my friend around sending me screenshots of like how this friend was feeling so changed after reading the book. And that's why I wrote the book. It's like, I want people to like have a high moment into you're not alone. You already have all the tools there in you. I'm just here to open them to you and make a space for you to like access them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> no, I think that's what we creatives try to do is to put it in ways that people understand that give them the opportunity to see themselves in places. You know, you're a strategist and a researcher. And I believe that what you're doing is a shift that the industry and education needs. So either as just in the way that you do workshops or tips that you have in your book, what are some insights that you think can help the industry and the education move in either to dispelling imposter syndrome or being more equitable? All right, this is a tough one. This is a tough one because I don't believe, I don't believe the education in the US has been created to educate people. I believe that's they've been created like schools originally were created to like brainwash and make little brains very exclusive, like follow what the society, what the government, what the power in place wants to do. Education in the US is propaganda. And we see that even this year, like with all the banned books, their race theory, like all the bills going everywhere of like, you should not use the terms, you shouldn't talk about this because it does not support the power in place. So we should not educate kids to have free thoughts. I'm, I'm very sour, like sour, like very, I'm beyond anger. I'm anti-cops because mm-hmm. this has been created for the same reason. It's to protect the power in place, not to protect the people. And this, I see the schools as the same. I have a kid. She's nine. She's at a public school. I picked a school that is amazing because they are anti-racist. I'm part of the anti-racist committee over there. It teach all about Native Americans. We are on stolen lands. I love that specific school, but it's very, it's a very isolated school. Like most of the, the education is not about educating people. It's about having little soldiers. So that's my take on like schools. Agreed. I mean, I think it's very difficult for me as an educator. I think one of the things is to get people to have their own version of thought. I think, like you said, the most powerful thing that somebody can have is an idea or even the ability to think on their own. So it goes against and is counterproductive to the power structures like you mentioned in this country. And I think, though, it's what helps drive 
invention, ingenuity, conceptualization. And I think you hit it right on the money where you're like all of these book bans, you know, dismantling affirmative action are just ways to keep the status quo because they're not really interested in, in progression. It's just, you know, maintaining power structures. So yeah, I totally agree. For me, that's also why there are so many bills on tight trends, legislation and bills. That's the same. It's because I've been through that, the leap of faith, when you're like, I'm talking only on people who were like coming out as adults, right? Because kids, my vision of the future, kids don't have to come out because being any gender you want is part of what is actually happening. In my own world, I live in Brooklyn. I'm like very like, I have privilege in being a city that is more inclusive than others. But as an adult coming out as trans means that you took a leap of faith into jumping out of the boat and you didn't die. Are you fucking thriving? And you're free. And you discover this other way of living that is not blocked, constructed, controlled. And they, the power in place, they hate that. Because you're free. You're free of thoughts. And you convince other people that they could have freedom in thoughts. And that's why there's so many control and hate and not wanting kids to have gender expansion and try to explore that because that's not what's going to make good white citizen Americans that's going to vote for keeping the power in place. And so being trans is already a revolutionary because you took the step and you're still alive and you're thriving. And that's something that I, I feel so like when I came out, I was not feeling that, like I was really feeling down and everything shifted, but, over the last years, I connected with a lot of trans elders, trans sisters, people who like were trans before us, and people like Alok sharing about why gender is freedom, like freedom of gender is revolutionary. And I believe that. And I believe that, like, I have a picture just above me uh, that says trans people will save the world. And that's what I believe. It's like, so we have to protect trans kids because they're going to be the one freeing mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love I love the idea of healthy living in a world where somebody doesn't have to come out, you know? And that's got to be a very liberating concept for that. My kid was gender expensive when she was younger. She was using he, him pronouns for a while. She was assigned birth, female at birth, but she was exploring gender. And I never said anything. I just said, yeah, do you? And then when she was like seven years old, she came to me like, Daddy, I think I'm a girl. And I was like, good for you. Good for you. And I, this is hilarious because it's like she had to come out as a cisgender girl to me. And I was like, this is, <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but at seven, they feel comfortable enough to do that. You know, I oh, think she was comfortable at three, four years old. Like at three years old, she asked me to come to the pre K. I talked about pronouns with the teacher and the kids, and I, she gave pronouns to all her classmates. That's awesome. So, but as we get closer to the What If Summit, that's going to be in October, I want to ask you a couple of questions more specifically to that summit that's happening. Mm-hmm. Why should organizations be prioritizing DEI? I think we have, we've seen a big shift in the past 
decade, I would say, it used to be always about money, always making more money. So you would just go into where the money was, which is always white people most of the time, cisgender, straight people. And there's a bit more consideration that happened. And now I really see there's so many more talks about the Gen Z people who are like growing into like being adults, spending money. And there's like graphs that I use when I do workshops of like so many more people are in between gender, in between sexual orientation and exploring. So there's more diversity in that aspect. There's going to be also way more biracial adults coming up. There's like the world is going to be more diverse. That's a very simple word for like something more complex, but like all of that. Also, we don't have more trans and queer people. We've always been here. We've been killed by people murdered in the past. That's why there are less now. And a lot of people died of AIDS because the government didn't do enough in the 80s. So all the people that should be now by our sides, elders, they are missing in those numbers because they don't live anymore. So what I see is that the Gen Z and my kids' generation going to grow and they're going to have a high percentage of being queer or being trans, being like having different gender identity, gender expression. And I don't want them to be killed. And they will re like repopulate all the queer and trans people that were killed. And that's, there's going to be more people asking for more diverse products and services. So it will become more like a financial need which I think is the only one that's going to make companies, corporate companies, make the change. And I see that already. Mm-hmm. I see that already compared to when I started Argo, right? Like there's more, the companies are like seeing that need for money, that they should craft products and services for people who are going to pay for it, mm-hmm. uh, which is sad, but it's also capitalism. So what did we expect? Like, what did we expect? Like Exactly. It won't change because of value, ethics, equity. It changed because of money, like the companies at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So which direction do you see the future of the DEI landscape heading in? Do you see that in a positive or a negative direction? This is for me, can we really improve a company that at its core is capitalist? How much energy can we spend into improving those companies versus thinking of creating new companies that are already based in core equity, diversity, accessibility. You know, like Threads, the new social network launched by by Meta, Facebook. This is not accessible. They launched a new product in 2023 and it's not accessible. There's no like alternative text for images. There's a lot of issues. Why create a new thing? It's the same Bullshit, right? It's the same network for having people use it. So people pay for ads, people buy stuff from the ads. Like that's the same. What if we think about other ways? And that's what I do with the All of Us research program. Like I want to believe that's what I do. We do a lot of research. We do a lot of like community centered research and testing. We like make the product and the uh, service for 
community centered. We have also partners. I work closely with Spreadnet. It's like the LGBTQ partner for all of us that care for trans and queer people. So for me, the route has to be community-centered. And there are companies like that. There are agencies like that. Now, for me, the future is like having that as a core and not trying to patch if the leadership of a company is still going to be driven by investors. That's the money is going to always be the answer and the cause and all of that. Yeah, I'm a bit down on hope these days. (laughs) (laughs) So let's bring the room back up, right? Can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek about what you may talk about at the What If conference in October? Yeah, so my talk at the What If Summit is going to be my process. So I really wanted to explain and show the process that I've been doing for redesigning the homepage of journalalus.org, the research program from the NIH. So I'm going to share all the steps that we did to have a very inclusive design, community-centered design. So I'm going to go through all the steps, like we did user research with underrepresented people, Spanish-speaking people, low literacy folks, like we like did an audit of the homepage. Then I kind of take workshops with the different divisions, taking if each insights from the research, making sure everyone in the room like really understood the problem to solve. Right, so, like this homepage does not provide enough information, does not make people from underrepresented communities safe and trusting the program, like stuff like that, and then. I hosted workshops, collaborative workshops into solutions and what should be in the new homepage. Made a prototype, got it tested also by underrepresented folks to have like insights on the copy, the design, the visuals we use, the testimonials, all the stuff we, we put out there. And then we improved according to that testing and then we translated it into Spanish. That's the only second language that the program is Handling now, but I'm pushing for more. That's part of my background work. And then we launched it. So that I wanted to share that it's almost like a one-year project, one-year-long project. And that's the project I started when I joined. So it was also part of me learning how a big organization like the NIH works. How do you make people who are there for 30 years? How do you make them excited again? How do you make them concerned about why the product is not inclusive and why it matters to actually change that specific word. Like until until that time they were using, we are rolling 1 million Americans. And I was like, hey, are we? Like, is it only citizens? We also enrolling people who don't have a status. People who are on visa. People are like refugees, immigrants. Like, so I, every little thing I challenged. And then now we say 1 million people living in the US. Mm-hmm. And it happens again, like sometimes say, oh, we, oh, that's the word we use is American. I'm like, no, we don't. So it's always like so many people are, so many, so many chefs in the kitchen, so many cooks in the kitchen. And so I, I'm like always like, no, no, don't change that. Don't do this. There's an intention between, behind yeah, even the words I use for uh, the buttons uh, used to be like see, watch, and I put like discover, explore, learn more. Like even the word I use for buttons, I do my best to not have those words being ableist. 
So mm-hmm. all of that, I want to share all those details all the way I've been working to create a collaborative and inclusive process. Nice. Nice. That's amazing. I cannot wait to see what's going to be happening during that time. So now just let my listeners know where they can find more about you, Max. Yeah. So I uh, I have a website. It's maxmajor.com, M-A-X-M-A-S-U-R-E.com. I'm also super active on Instagram. My uh, handle is Mad Max Mazur. So same, like Mad Max is because I'm from the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm on LinkedIn. Always happy to connect with folks. And uh, yeah, I think the three best place to meet me or invite me to get an ice matcha and I will be there. (laughs) That's good to know. That's good to know. I may just have to get invite you to get an ice matcha in Brooklyn. Yes. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really one of these enlightening chats to to kind of understand not only what you've been doing, but I really say thank you for sharing the shifts in you know your own personal life, in your career, and how that's starting to transpire into more community-driven things. Mm-hmm. So it was such an amazing conversation. Can't wait to see what you're going to do and, and hear all of the homepage transitions for the All of Us Healthcare um, Initiative webpage. So everybody check out the show notes and in social media to get any codes or tickets for the event. What if on October 3rd and 4th? Take care, Max. Really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much. It was a blast and a great pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. This has been Works in Process. What a conversation. It was such a great opportunity to hear Max talk about their journey, discovering about their own imposter syndrome, understanding what their purpose was as a creative, and starting to do work for the larger community and not just the select few. If you want to learn more about the various organizations, people, or projects mentioned in the conversation, please check out the show notes in your podcast player or at our website, wip.show. The Works and Process podcast is created by me, George Garistegui Jr., and the content, transcriptions, and research has been done by Orr Schifflinger. And this episode has been edited by RJ Basilio. You can find Works and Process in all media platforms, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. And if you like the episode, feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Come on, be extra generous and write us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. And you know what? Just subscribe on the platform that you're listening to right now. It's that easy. Follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn to stay up to date on the new releases of every episode. And as always, I appreciate you taking the journey with me, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Until next time, remember that our work is never final. It's always a works in process. Mm -hmm.